That's fantastic. Thank you for reminding us of that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So we always should remember and praise the Lord for that gift of Christ on the cross and the shedding of blood. It's good to be with you today. Uh, Fun day today in the Word, and I hope that you're ready to be uh, in the Word today. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Begin up at verse 12, and for all the little guys up through grade 4, if you'd like to be in a, your parents would like you to be downstairs, they can head down there, follow the herd, and if you want them to stay with you, they can stay with you. We love kids, and so put them where you'd like them. Coming off a fun day yesterday, some of our uh, college and career students were married here, Johnson Hoffman, Mary Jewel uh, Hornick, and so uh, a fun day yesterday as we celebrated all of that, all the families in, and so we had a good time together, and so um, that's why the pulpit wasn't plugged in. You know, there's always something that doesn't get done right at the last minute, you know, when you reset everything back up. So look in your copy of God's Word. Let's read together as our habit, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Let's read there. That'll be our text for today as we ask the Lord's blessing. In fact, let's just do that. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on the reading of his word before we start. Lord, we thank you today for opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for the chance to teach it from uh, from the perspective of the Apostle Paul as he is giving it to the church. Help us to understand its first hearer's understanding and then to come away with that and you use that in order to make application in our own life. It is always our prayer that you do what you will with your word. It goes out in power and returns Without, it does not return to you without doing what you uh, say it will do. You've exalted your word equal into your own name. And so, Lord, we, we want to exalt it as well, put it in its rightful place. So help our time together to be driven by your word and not my thoughts, things that might uh, bring us away from your thoughts, but focus on the things you would have us to know and to apply. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So look in your copy of God's word, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. And that will be our text today. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Verse 13. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. Verse 14. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you are, you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Let's stop right there. On our first stop last week in this new section, all the way through the end of this chapter, we took some time to look at an important part of Paul's walk with the Lord, and thus his testimony. We took uh, that opportunity to see that that is an important part his conscience is an important part of that testimony, and he uses his conscience as a proof of his integrity as his sincerity in his ministry to them, so we can see kind of the, some of the weight that he puts on that. The conscience is not something that we talk about all that much, but because we teach verse by verse through the Word of God, when we come to that point, uh, we get to do it. And so that's a joy for us to dig in right here and look at something that's so very important and perhaps we haven't uh, thought on for a while. But a fully informed conscience, this is some of the basis of last week, based on the word of God dwelling richly in the believer, will create a point, and this is very important, a point of accountability greater than any other point of accountability. I would propose that to you. Uh, It's amazing how good people can get at fooling 
all the people around them. And I think we've all experienced that, both personally and as someone is doing it to us. But I think that we find that we can't fool conscience. There are things others cannot know and never will know, and my conscience knows them full well. There are indictments that my conscience can make against me that no one in this world can make, and that's why conscience is that highest human court. And when a man can say, as Paul says, I have the testimony of my conscience bearing me witness, he has really appealed to the highest level that there is in the purest point of human accountability. So we're, of course, we're talking about an informed conscience by the word of God. We're talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit also there. But as we think about conscience, as we think about Paul and putting the importance that he has on it, I think we can say that there is this highest point of uh, an appeal, if you will, and that is the human accountability of conscience. And one of the big applications of a passage like this, particularly as we are able to see the extent to which Paul uses his conscience as proof of his integrity and sincerity, and I'll give you a number of verses today that will help you understand just how important this is to Paul. But one of the big applications, I think, of the passage is for us to learn or verify that we are living sensitively and responsibly to what our conscience says. So we're hearing that conversation that's going on, that the Lord has put in the heart of each individual. Because Paul's emphasis shows that this accountability is part of the foundation of spirituality. And so if you've not thought about it in a while, perhaps this is time to reincorporate those thoughts into your mind. Because you can fool anybody, and I mean anybody. But you can't fool your conscience, not a fully informed conscience. We, as Paul illustrated for us, are to listen to it because conscience knows what no one else can know. And that very fact, again, as a takeaway, has so many applications to, give, to giving grace and giving forgiveness and giving patience and keeping a short sin list and repentance. And you know about yourself things no one but the Lord knows. And here's the deal. He knows you know. And I believe he measures your response to others in relation to what you know. Does that make sense? So this highest accountability in your own mind, this conversation that you are having, this conversation with a host thinker, this conscience, as we looked at the Lord uh, explaining to us through Paul in Romans, how he puts that on the heart of every individual and informs it with the word of God. And that is the starting point for every person. For the believer not only being fully informed with the word of God, but having an indwelling Holy Spirit, I think we get to this point where uh, it has a great takeaway because that gives you the opportunity to give forgiveness and give patience and, and, uh, and to, to uh, as you, he measures out your understanding of your own self and a self-awareness, if you will, your response to other people. So in other words, your motivation to talk to someone and say something to someone or to forgive someone or to overlook a fault should be directly related to how informed you are about your own conscience and what it tells you on a day-to-day -day basis about yourself because there are things that your conscience tells you that no one around you will ever know. Your wife won't know, your husband won't know. Unless you express that to them, your conscience makes observations about you and you know this. And the more you're walking in the word and the more the word dwells in you uh, fully and in wisdom, uh, the more you'll be able to give the correct responses to other people, see. When we know what the, we know about ourselves, see, it makes us all the more grateful for the Lord's unconditional forgiveness, doesn't it? Because we know just how great his forgiveness is towards us, 
because a fully informed conscience will tell you all, indict you for all the things that you do. And then you realize that those things are all forgiven and under the blood. And it should make his followers better reprints of him. And so those are great takeaways. If you just think about conscience and everything we talked about last week. Now, you can look more at those issues from uh, last time where we dealt with conscience at length and set a foundation for where it comes from and why it's important and how it can be diminished in some ways by being seared or being calloused. And I'd invite you to go online and look at those things so you can fill in all those things if you weren't with us last time. Because as we move into the next 12 verses of this chapter, they all are going to really key on Paul's integrity and his sincerity as he dealt with this church. And that integrity and that sincerity were defended primarily by his conscience, not by what the church said about him, not by what necessarily other people would say, not necessarily even what Paul uh, would say about himself because he said, you know, my conscience doesn't indict me, but that doesn't take me off the hook. But the fact of the matter is that Paul primarily defends himself with his conscience, and we looked at it last time, we'll look at it just briefly, quickly to remind you, because he had set those standards and said, okay, this is the standard by which you're to evaluate me, and because these are the things the Lord has told me to do. And remember, it's not that Paul didn't sin, or that you and I, uh, with a fully informed conscience, don't sin, it's just that uh, he responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit as we should. And so then, it, it's his conscience is constantly being informed and confirmed by the word of God. And so he would follow the warning system of his conscience. And so he could say, I have confidence that I dealt with you in the right way. My conscience is clear. So he'd correct whatever false course he was being on because his conscience was informing him immediately. That's a false course. Don't head that direction. And so he would say, okay, um, this is the direction I need to go. So he could say, I've dealt with you in a clear conscience. I've done what I'm supposed to do. He didn't want to turn his conscience off as we t saw last time, a cover with calluses, it, you know, where there had been friction between his thoughts and his actions and the prompting of the conscience, as we saw in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. So, in other words, the actions and the thoughts are constantly going against what the conscience is saying, and so there creates this callus where there's no longer any feeling. And then we saw in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, he didn't want to sear his conscience by, over time, informing his thoughts with the lies of the culture. So in other words, you, you, you kind of immerse yourself in what the culture says, what the culture is telling you is right, and this constant feeding your mind, instead of with being informed by the Word of God, but feeding your mind what the conscience says, what academia says, whatever it is, okay? And then what ends up happening is, because you're feeding the culture in, you're really searing your conscience, Paul says, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, and that's a sign of the last days, he says. He wanted his uh, conscience fully operationally relied on it. We see these other two things happening as we look at the headlines and we think, how could somebody possibly do that? Or how could somebody say that? Or so how could somebody um, you know, think those kinds of things? And then we realize that it's po very possible that what was happening here that Paul says in Ephesians 4.17, that there's a, there's a callus between what the conscience is saying and what the actions are. There is a searing going on because of the, the person's being informed by the culture and not by the word of God. We can see that's how those things can happen. So Paul wanted his fully operational. He relied on it. It's a wonderful gift that God has given every individual, and Paul wanted his fully developed. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, he says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. So he leads with that, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. In other words, we live the way we were supposed to live, so we have a clear conscience. In everything we've done, our conscience agreed with us, and it is fully informed by the word of God. And we saw the undercurrents in the verse last time. You remember, Paul's sinful, 
right? Because he says in holiness and godly sincerity, uh, Paul isn't genuine. He has an agenda. Uh, Paul is a false teacher, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God. So all those things are still there. He realizes those accusations are still circulating around the church. So Paul says, you know what? You think I'm a sinner. You think I'm not genuine, that I've got some agenda or I'm deceiving you in some way. You think I'm a false teacher. Uh, you know, my conscience tells me the opposite of those things, Paul says. And that's a pretty bold statement. Proud confidence is that one word in the Greek to be boasting, to boast. Paul, Timothy, Sylvanus, and we know Titus, uh, that's the R, our conscience. Uh, we can boast in our conscience, it's clear. And what happens in the next 12 verses, and really throughout the course of this letter, if we understand these things correctly, is that Paul addresses these issues over and over again, whether he's sinful, whether he's genuine, whether he's a false teacher, but he's going to do it in such a way that they see his heart, and we're going to see that today. Not just to say, okay, this stops, and this is what you need to do. Okay, I know what you do when you come together, when you take communion, like Paul said in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, but this is not what you're supposed to do, and that's why some of you are weak, sick, and number sleep. This is what you're supposed to do. And so this is not to say, I know what happens in the service of 1 Corinthians 14. You guys are all talking at the same time, and everybody's got a prophecy, and everybody's got something to say, and whatever, and it's just big, it's chaos. Paul says that's not what's supposed to go on. Here is what's supposed to go on. And here instead, Paul's going to show from his own heart his own experiences, why this is how you're supposed to respond. And so I like the, the change, and I think it's very helpful for us also to see uh, Paul's own heart. So if you, um, as, we, as we look back at 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6 last week, in the middle of lots of criticism directed towards Paul and others who led the church, this is how he said, okay, set this level of evaluation here, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 4, 1, he gives them the way he informs his conscience on what he's supposed to do as a minister. So, you know, regardless of what the church may think about him, here's what he's supposed to do. Here's what he has to do. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. If you're going to think of me, regard me then, think of me as a servant of Christ, huperetes, the galley slave, if you will. That's that word, an under rower. That's... Uh, not a lot of dignity in that office, a servant of the word, Luke 1, 1 says. And so th there's that same word under rower again, defines even better for those who serve as pastors. They have to be a servant of the word. Why? Because to serve Christ is to know his word. 1 Corinthians 4, 1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. And he said, if you're going to set a standard for me and evaluate whether or not I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, realize that I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. Oikonomos, oikos house, nomos manager. I'm a house manager of the affairs that the Lord has set uh, under my authority. So Paul says, regard us this way. I'm an under rower, a manager of the goods God wants me to dispense in the house I'm supposed to take care of. And what's God's goods? What are they to dispense? Uh, this fills out the substance that a man regard us in this manner, as servants, an under rower of Christ, and stewards, a house manager of the mysteries of God. When I think about my ministry to you, Paul says, as I understand what I'm supposed to do, my conscience is clear because I did just that. I simply say, God's called me to take his word and pass it out to his people. I'm not a false teacher, Paul says. I've been entrusted with the resources of his word, and I've administered them just as it was given to me. I delivered it to you, and that is an important point for today because we're going to see this in just a second. Paul says, I don't say one thing and then say something else differently. And it all reminds us of Paul's comments in 2 Corinthians 1.12 which we're going to see in a moment, but Paul says, I preach to you, what? He says, I preach to you not in fleshly wisdom, and earthly wisdom is that which resorts to the peddling of the word of God. We saw in 2 Corinthians 2.17, uh, uo, the word for a huckster. Listen, I don't, I don't, I'm not a huckster of the word. I'm not making things up just to sell it to you, okay? I'm not making it sound good to your ear, so you'll be more likely to listen to me further, okay? Lots of hucksters in the world today. 
just to be straight with you, okay? Lots of hucksters in the world. Lots of people trying to make the word sound better and dress it all up in some way so that it sounds good to the ear and people will come back and hear. Okay, Paul says, I don't resort to that. I don't preach in fleshly wisdom, see? And earthly wisdom or fleshly wisdom would be cunning, like adulterating the word of God we're going to see in 2 Corinthians 4.2. Dol uo, that's the verb for a decoy. I'm not setting up some snare for you, some crafty way so I can manipulate you to do something I want you to do. See a lot of that in the world today, too. The manipulating of the word of God somehow to elicit some certain response from you. Okay? So, Paul says, I'm not a huckster. I'm not trying to set some trap. I'm not trying to ensnare you. Instead, he says, but by the grace of God. This is how I preach. The ministry of the grace of God is one which relies upon and sees the power of God at work in it. So, it's what does the word of God say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? Just straight how it comes out of the book, see? And catch this, Paul says. He, says. he says, we have conducted ourselves in the world. So this is the part we didn't get to last time. This is how we've lived in the world, see? My conscience is clear, Paul says, in how I've conducted myself in this culture that surrounds these churches. In other words, okay, understand this. No double standard. No excuses to be conformed to the world or to love the world and, and the things in it. No, sir. Nothing's going to, here's the thing, nothing's going to come to light later and embarrass my testimony and embarrass the church. Okay? So I'm not living one way in front of you and then over here when nobody can see, I'm doing kind of whatever I want to do and just kind of taking care of my own fleshly desires or needs. And we see that happening all the time too, don't we? So again, Paul is very relevant to our culture today. Paul says, listen, I'm not, I'm not preaching in fleshly wisdom and peddling the word of God and creating some kind of trap to manipulate you. I'm, I'm preaching by the grace of God. And I've conducted myself, Paul says, in the world around you so that there's not going to be any compromised testimony. And then this last part of verse 12 says, and especially toward you. And this is, again, our focus. As we look at the word of God, we see the believers and the church are supposed to serve believers primarily. Yes, there's service that goes on to the world, but for the most part, unredeemed people think Christianity is stupid. And they think, Paul says, it's the smell of death to those who are, who are, who are perishing. Those who haven't come to faith, uh, the gospel sounds ridiculous. So yes, I've conducted myself in, in our world with an impeccable testimony, but especially towards you, you've been my special focus, Paul says. Our testimony in the world is impeachable, although they may not always understand what we do. They may accuse us of something. Remember, Peter had something to say about that in 1 Peter 2.12. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. When you read that, realize that means those outside at that point, the faith, okay? People who didn't understand the word of God, had not received the word of God, so that, why do you keep your behavior excellent? Why is it important that as the world watches, there's not a compromised testimony? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, does that ever happen? <laughs> sure. I, I think there's this general undercurrent in the culture today that everything would be better if there weren't any Christians involved with anything. Would you agree with that? I, I think that we can read that in our media today. And I think we can hear that in some news outlets if we listen to it, that, you know, Christianity and the things that Christians do, we'd be a whole lot better off if we didn't have it, see? which is a foolish thing, right? I haven't seen any hospitals created by atheists. Have you? Humanist philanthropists. There's not many that fall into that category, are there? Just think about, beloved, and this is just to encourage you, think about the hundreds of millions of dollars that are collected by churches around the U.S. and are sent abroad. And what are they accomplishing? They're building clinics for the Word of God, and people are seeing medical help come to them where there wasn't any. They are seeing 
uh, water and wells dug so that communities can have water for the, for the word of Christ so that people will know Jesus loves them, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars every single year coming from people who are not standing in front of a camera with a check that's four by eight so that everybody can see this is what we're doing. They're just doing it. Why? Because they're supposed to do it because they know they love Christ and they want to express that to the world. But there's this undercurrent in our culture today that says everything would be better if there weren't any Christians involved in anything. How nice that would be, right? So Paul says, listen, our testimony in the world is impeachable, although they may not always understand. Keep your behavior, so Peter says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so then the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There will come a time when the world will recognize that what you've been doing has been right all along. Although right now they think it's ridiculous. I have family that think what I do is ridiculous. Per, close family. And many of you do too. But you know what? Just keep your behavior excellent. Conduct yourselves in the world in such a way so that there is no compromised testimony and just leave the rest to the Lord because he's going to bring all of that to light someday. So this is impeccable testimony among unbelievers but you, Paul says, are our special focus. You're the ones we're committed to serving above all the other efforts in the world. This is where I have my greatest boast, Paul says. And that was Paul's exact comment from Romans 15, 17. Remember what he said? Therefore, in Christ, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting, here it is, in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. As Paul understands God's work, Okay, we're going back. I, I don't minister in fleshly wisdom, he says. I minister in the grace of God. So as he understands the work God's doing through him, through this stewardship of the word, remember that's because that's what he's supposed to be, a steward of the word, a, a house manager. If God, by his grace, catch this, chooses to manifest his power, then the ministry will be effective. And if not, Paul says, I'm not going to seek to produce results by underhanded means, and so his conscience remains clear. Whatever he's going to do, whatever God wants to do in the church, whether it's a visible movement of his power and things are really happening, or it is a movement of his power where things he's, he's chastening people and bringing people to, into discipleship and, and correcting their behavior and bringing suffering on, on wickedness, whatever it is he's doing, Paul says, listen, I'm not going to result to underhanded means to get some kind of outward response. I'm just glad Christ, through the power of God, has resulted in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. So Paul is rejoicing in that. And that is his most important thing, especially, he says, toward you. And in that respect, Paul says then, back to 1 Corinthians 4.2, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So as you evaluate me, understand this is where I'm going to be. I'm not going to adulterate the word of God. I'm not going to create some snare, so I'm going to, uh, you know, somehow manipulate you to do something. I'm going to operate in the grace of God, and I'm going to do it in the world. I'm going to do it especially towards you, and as to the extent that I do that, I'm trustworthy. So if you're going to evaluate me, this is how it's supposed to look. He has, he has to be doing this as his primary ministry unto Christ in order to be found faithful. That's the main thing. We won't look at it again, but verse 3 in this same passage gave the church the first example of how Paul uses his conscience to evaluate his ministry. He goes, and in that respect, my conscience does not accuse me. And then later you get to this passage and we realize this is exactly how Paul evaluates himself. I'm not worried, he says, about what you think. I'm an under-roarer, a galley slave of Christ, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God, and to that end I relay those things well and consistently, just as they come out of the kitchen, so I serve them, to that end I'll be judged. So Paul has a clear conscience. See? So it's important. He just appeals right back to it. 
And he knew, he, was, he knew what he was supposed to do. He had rebuked this church. He corrected this church. He had to go all kinds of pains to attempt to set it straight. And he suffered all kinds of things for the ministry's sake. And so even though his conscience is clear, he's going to address again these three issues all the way through this letter. Paul's in sin. Paul's not sincere. Paul's a false teacher. But he leads off and says, listen, regardless of what you might think, my conscience is clear. And I boast in that conscience that we've dealt with you as we should. So then we get to 2 Corinthians 1.13. And here he comes back to this issue of teaching his under rower's position, his stewardship, if you will, of the resources God's provided. So he's going to address, then, this integrity question. The question is integrity. Okay, and later we're going to see, they're going to question his sincerity. You said you were going to come, you didn't come, you, you know, you're kind of wishy-washy back and forth that way. So he's going to address sincerity later, but here he's going to address integrity. So here he says this, look at verse 13 in your copy of God's Word, 2 Corinthians 1.13. So this verse continues Paul's defense of earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom and the accusation that he's a false teacher. So he says this, For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. Paul says, What I'm saying is what I have been saying. So Paul's first answer to this integrity question is there's no double meaning here. I don't have any kind of agenda. I'm not trying to manipulate anything. I'm not trying to, you know, create some kind of, of deceitful hook to get you to do something. I've said what I've always said, the same thing I've always said. So it's an attack on Paul's integrity. You write one thing, they say, but you mean something else. You say one thing here, you say something else. So there's all this undercurrent of rumor, okay? And we've already looked at the passages in this letter where Paul says he's not a peddler, he's not crafty, he isn't setting a trap or whatever. So, but if you look at 2 Corinthians 6, 8, and I'll just put it up for you, um, Paul's talking about the daily process of doing ministry. Here's what he says. So here, he's aware of how this works in the church. He says, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true. Paul says, listen, let me, let me give you a summary of the general trip I've had in the ministry. And we're going to get to this, so I won't spend a lot of time here. But Paul just kind of puts together a paragraph that kind of sums up basically what he endures on a regular basis. And every other pastor who's ever pastored does as well. The daily difficulties of the ministry will include praise and criticism, evil report and good. Paul says, this is common fare. This has been the norm for me as I deal with you as he talks to the Corinthian church. We are regarded as deceivers, and yet we aren't. My conscience is clear. Again, he would appeal back to his conscience, but he just says it straight up. You know, you, you say we're, we're uh, you say there's, uh, you know, there's a bad report, and you say we're a deceiver, yet that's not true. The fact of the matter is that evil reports will come. The fact of the matter is we're regarded as liars, but that doesn't make it true. Paul says this is just common fare for me. That's what he's used to dealing with. So, for we write, he says, nothing else to you than what you read. So, look back at verse 13. We write nothing else to you than what you read, which is a present active indicative verb, anagonosko. It's to recognize as authentic by reading. So, in other words, as they read his letter, the idea was immediately they knew that was, you could, they could hear Paul's words in their mind. So, Paul just calls this integrity question on the carpet. He just says, listen, when you read what I wrote, you know it was me. It's authentic. And he, he says, for we write nothing else than what you read. So what you've read and you understood it was me, we write, that's the same thing we write. And what you understand, epic and nosco. So present active indicative. This is to thoroughly be acquainted with. So Paul says, when you opened it up and you read it, you knew it was me. Paul says, as you continue to read it, it resonated in you. This, is, this was what Paul has always taught. Paul's calling on their knowledge of the time he was with them. 
He's teaching them for 18 months, other letters he's written to them. He says, listen, these all say exactly the same thing, and they have the same content, and when you read it, you recognize it's me. My conscience isn't saying this, Paul says. So just kind of imagine this. Paul says, my conscience isn't saying, yeah, but remember when you were trying to manipulate the word of God so they do some certain thing, so maybe they would pay you or maybe they would welcome you into their homes. Paul doesn't have that conscience accusing him. He says, he says, listen, I didn't come talk to you and then try to convince you of some certain thing. I didn't have some private agenda going on. His conscience, he says, was clear. What I said is what I still say. And chapter 10 says that what he wrote, and we'll get here later, chapter 10 here in 2 Corinthians says what he wrote is what he'll still say when he comes. He goes, listen, when I finally visit you again, what I've wrote all along, what you've read and understood, I'm going to come, and we're going to figure out who has power and who doesn't. He just kind of lays it on the line there. Same message, my conscience is clear. And then 2 Corinthians, at, uh, verse 13, right at the end, he says, and I hope, he says, you will understand until the end. Future, middle, indicative. So the understand there is in a different set, okay? Tense, voice, and mood. So Paul is calling on them to participate in continually staying thoroughly acquainted with the word. So I hope you'll understand until the end. A continuous involvement. Middle means you participate in what's going on. Paul says, I want you to be continually understanding until the end. Thoroughly acquainted with what I've written to you. And he harkens back to 1 Corinthians 1.8 where he says the same thing. Who will confirm you to the end? Remember, you had this, you're a saint and, and, and by the word of God you've been changed and, the, and Christ will confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying really this. The real question to those attacking my integrity is, I guess you'll show that you're really Christ if you continue in the words I've written. Regardless of what you might think about them, the fact of the matter is that there's no double standard here. I haven't said one thing one way and one something to another. When you read it, you recognized it with my voice. When you read it, you understood what it said, and you understood that it resonated with you as what I've said before when I was with you, and I hope you'll continue to resonate with that all the way to the end. Let the word dwell in you richly with all wisdom. And so that's the question, and that appears to be the idea, one that's very common to Paul, to test yourself and see if you're in the faith. How will you know you're really a believer? You're going to continue to read what I've said. You're going to understand it all the way to the end. And the very last chapter of this, 2 Corinthians 13, uh, 1 through 6, Paul says this, in these sobering words, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance. So I've said it already. I'm saying it again while I'm gone from you. I'm saying exactly the same thing I've always said. This is exactly the way I've preached to you all along. This is how I've taught you to behave. If you want to know what that looks like, go back and read what I wrote before. Remember what I said when I was with you. So he says, although now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well. So listen, all this group, whatever you are, whoever you are, you continue to oppose me, you continue to be in sin. Paul says, listen, I've said this to you in the past. I've said to the rest as well that if I come again, I'll not spare anyone. Paul says, listen, I've come softly. I've given you letters, sorrowful letters. I've sent Titus there. I've sent Timothy there. I've asked you not to hurt him while he was there. All that kind of stuff. Listen, I'm done with all of this. I've dealt with you as I should. When I come, I'm not going to spare anyone. Since you're seeking for proof of Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. Mark this. For we also are weak in him. Paul says, I don't have any power in myself. I'm not relying on anything on my own. 
Yet, we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. So in other words, your presence in the faith is the witness that we belong to Christ and will see our hope of future glorification. But how about you, Paul says? How about you? Is that going to be the same for you? Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself that Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. And then catch this. But I trust you'll realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Continue to understand what I've written all along to the end. Why? Because this is going to be important and there'll be a test. This is how you're going to measure your spirituality. If you want to be conformed to the image of Christ, understand that this is what it's going to look like. Unless, of course, you're not Christ at all, and then you're going to fail the test as you see if Christ is even in you. But my conscience is clear, says Paul. We know where we're going. Now look at verse 14, 1 Corinthians 1, okay? 1 Corinthians 1, 14. We're just going to work our way verse by verse, word by word. Paul says, I hope you will understand until the end. And in verse 14 he says, just as you also partially did understand us. So in other words, I have more to bring you, right? I mean, that's just obvious to them and to us, right? If you think about the circumstances about how this letter is being presented. So we're reading what Titus probably was reading to them, correct? I mean, Titus comes with a letter. He opens it up. This is from Paul. Hearken in the King James. Paul says, you recognize by reading that they were words from me. So as soon as Titus opens his mouth, you know that those were words from me. You understand as you think about them that they are continuous with what I've said before. You understood what I said, continue to dwell on it now until the end, and now there's more. Please hear it as Titus reads it. And then we get to that last part of verse 14. He says that we, here's this new part, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours. And so this is Paul's second answer to this integrity question. Instead of being ashamed of Paul and critical of Paul, see, and Timothy and Titus, we, that's the we, we are your reason to be proud as you are also ours. They have reason to be proud of him and all God has accomplished in him. See, that's the switch. Okay, you're questioning my integrity and all this kind of stuff. He goes, instead of being critical of me, really, it should be the other way around. My conscience is clear. What I've done among you is correct. I've kept my testimony uh, above board in the world, especially towards you. I've done what I'm supposed to do, discharged my minister to you as an as a underroar, as a steward. Paul says, listen, you have reason to be proud as you also are our reason to be proud. And here's Paul's longing, and really you just get to see the heart of Paul here. That's what I really love about this passage. You know, he was proud of them, he loved them, and what? He wanted them to understand this and revere him in the same way. That's a very unique response here, only here in the New Testament from Paul. Okay? You see that heartache of Paul here, among other places? You can hear Paul say, do you have any idea how I have labored over you? All that I've suffered on your behalf, like we saw in the earlier verses of this chapter. All the suffering for Christ's sake, everything the Lord has accomplished in me, Paul says, through my suffering for Christ's sake, some of it at your hands, he's made me the man that I am. So he wants that connection with him. And in this very last part of verse 14, he says, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like I want you to pursue the thorough understanding of my words until the end, I want you to know that this is the reality on that day. So here's the switch, okay? When we face Christ... Here, Paul directs his reader's attention to the day of the Lord Jesus. That day, and we've looked at this before, and we'll see it again, when every person's life and work will be subject to divine scrutiny. Did you know that that day's already set? You surely do if you've come here. 
everybody who's ever lived has a day of divine scrutiny. If you're a believer, you have what's called the Bema Seat Judgment, where the Lord will take a look at everything that you've done and everything you've built on the foundation of Christ. If you're a non-believer, you have a great white throne judgment waiting for you, where you don't have anybody speaking on your behalf but you. You come to faith in Christ, you put your hope in him, you confess your sins to him, you allow him to cleanse you and become your Lord and your Savior, and you have him on your behalf, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you're not a believer, your, your day of scrutiny is already set in the future too. That's the great white throne judgment. You will stand before the Lord and you'll give account of everything that you have done and he'll open all the books of everything you've actually thought and everything you've ever said. And if you violated any one of his laws, you violated all of them and you'll find yourself cast into the eternal fire forever. Because you not, because that's the price. See, everybody gets what they want. Not everybody's going to like what they get. See, you want to have a life without God? You'll get to have that. And you'll get to have a judgment without him too. And you'll get to have an internal future without him in torment. Or... You can come to Christ and you can say, Lord, I am who you say I am, and I am a sinner. I don't, even keep my, I don't even keep up to my own standards, let alone yours, and there's no way I can be possibly good enough for a perfect God who sent his son to be the satisfaction for the sinful world. There's no way I could ever be worthy of the God who is on high and holy. And so Christ has been my payment, and I claim Christ's payment on my behalf, and I turn my life over. See? In that respect, you'll have Christ speaking on your behalf. But everybody has this day of scrutiny. And for believers, here's what Paul's talking to. This time when you come before the Lord in the BMC judgment, he just looks at everything you've done. Not for eternal punishment, but just to scour away by fire everything that wasn't done by faith. So that connection, he says, I know you will understand fully, as you've understood in part, that you will be proud you can be proud of us as we can be of you. And this is Paul's third answer to the integrity question. And this really deals with his own hope, okay? Paul says, listen, I hope someday you'll be proud of me, okay? Paul says, wouldn't you just rejoice and be proud as I am of you? That's the, first, that's the second one. Here's the third one. And here it is. In spite of everything he's endured, he has a clear conscience. What is it? That he will be recognized by this church on the day of Christ. The fact of the matter is that is definitely going to happen. What would he like to see happen right now? For them to come and walk in the truth and recognize that everything he's done and all he's suffered on their behalf has been for their benefit. And the Lord has done a great work through his work and they should be able to see that and rejoice and be proud of him as he is of them. But Paul says regardless of that, in the end that will be the case. So he's looking forward to being proud of them. Uh, you know, his recognition may have to wait. Okay, Paul is already proud of what he's accomplished in them and can say you're, you are my, you're my testimony written on hearts. You're the testimony of the Lord at work in me because you've come to faith and you've grown in your understanding. See, he's looking forward to being proud of them and he's, he's proud of them now, and, but he may have to wait for his own recognition. And that's a very common theme for Paul. You see his hope for the church in, Thessalon in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. He says, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. See, already, Paul says, you're my glory and my joy, and so much more at the time when we meet Christ. That was an excitement Paul could barely contain. His life wasn't wrapped up in this world, was it? For I'm crucified with Christ, and therefore now I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In this life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That seems so far away from maybe the thoughts that we have on a regular basis. 
I'm crucified to the things of this world. That, these things are, I mean, I have to live here and I have to provide for my family, all those kinds of things, but they are not my number one priority, okay? Christ and glorifying him is, and everything else lines up under that. And then he said, you know, supply for your needs of your family and take care of all those kinds of things. And so we do that in obedience to Christ. But we see all that clearly through the word, see? Through the word. That's why, as a man, you lead your wife that way, see? You, that, that pointing towards Christ is where you are, and then everything else comes into clear picture. So how do I love my life? You, you love my wife, you love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How do I work? You work as unto the Lord Christ, whom you really serve, and you adorn the gospel when you work hard. See? Take care of the needs of your family, because if you don't, you're worse than an unbeliever. See, everything comes in line when we point that, when we point that right towards Christ, see, as a man. And then you learn exactly how you're supposed to respond to your wife and exactly how you're supposed to uh, respond to your children, to love them so they're not angry with you, to teach them to respect and obey by discipline and instruction, see? So that when they're old... They won't depart from it. Everything comes into clear alignment as we understand this whole thing. So Paul says, listen, you know, you are our joy. I can see this now. I'd love for you to see that I am as you, yours as well. Christ is going to come, and all that work that he's done would be the, his crown from Christ. See, what a great reality for Paul. What a great reality for every believer. We've seen the same excitement for the church in Philippi. Philippians 4.1. Paul says, therefore, this is a very common thing for Paul, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Again, crown, see? All the labor, worth it, so that Christ would be glorified. And as a footnote, beloved, did you know, Revelation 4.10, it speaks, and we've looked at this, if you've been with us long enough, we looked through the entire book of Revelation, taught it. But anyway, Revelation 4.10 speaks of 24 elders. Remember that? Remember that? These are real people. Um, likely representatives of the redeemed, casting their crowns before the Lamb, okay? If you don't remember that, you can look that up, Revelation 14 on your own time. You know, that's a marvelous reality fixed already in the future. Did you know that? There is a future date fixed where all the redeemed will be before the Lamb, and those who have crowns will get to cast them before the throne, right before his feet, see? That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's, that's a marvelous reality. That's a fixed date. Wouldn't it be great to have a crown or more to lay at his feet? I mean, just think about this. this is Paul saying this, but see, as we follow Paul, as Paul follows Christ, we understand there's crowns that are going to be given for faithful work. Um, just kind of a, just, just kind of for free here as an as a advertisement, you know, the crown of righteousness, you know, 2 Timothy 4, 8, commensurate with your struggle against sin. That's, that's how you love is appearing, as you struggle against sin. So there's this crown of righteousness waiting for you to the extent that you struggled, Right? First uh, Thessalonians 2.19, the crown of exaltation given for what? Evangelism and laboring in the church, building the kingdom through converts and discipleship. There's a crown there. Our joy, our crown of exaltation. You know, no slide here, but James 1.12, blessed is the man who perseveres. Catch this, this is very, very connected to our previous sermons just a couple weeks ago. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. That's thlipsis, that's pressing pressure. So you're going through a hardship. For once he has been approved, that's when you get to the point where you have proven character, that's that word, he'll receive what? The crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. How about that? A crown connected to dealing with pressing pressure. So pressing pressure, not only do you get to develop patient endurance, proven character, and hope, you're going to get a crown for doing it well. That's pretty cool. 
pressing pressures of life which produce proven character. And those that love the Lord are the ones that what? Those are the ones that obey his commands, 1 John 5, 3. So how do you know you love the Lord? Well, to the extent you obey his commands. You can say you love the Lord all you want, but as you live your life and you ob obviously do the opposite of what the Lord's saying, you really express that you don't love him that much. That's 1 John 5, 3. No slide, 1 Peter 5, 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. So there's a crown given to those who work as under shepherds, described in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, and perhaps some others. But catch this, beloved. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live in such a way that some of the reward that the Lord says in Revelation 22, 12, behold, I'm coming quickly, and my what? My reward is with me to give to everyone for their deeds. Wouldn't it be great as you think about that, to understand that some of that reward would be yours. It's pretty simple as you read it, wh where the reward comes from. We're not talking about working our way into heaven. We're not talking about securing our salvation somehow eternally by the good works we do. We're responding to the love of Christ in obedience. See? And by that response in obedience, we show that we really love it. And by that response in obedience, the Lord in his graciousness says, well done. I'm going to reward you for doing this. And then you get to give glory to Christ forever because of what you did temporarily here. That's a pretty good deal. That's an investment that you need to be thinking about. Okay? That's one that follows you. So that's a great focus Paul had. And what a great focus we can have too. And that was an excitement Paul could barely contain. Christ would come. All of his work would be his crown from Christ. And all that work in the lives of those in the churches were his proud boast. And he mentions it many times in the New Testament. But... The interesting thing about the end of verse 14 is that only here do we see the pride he expects his converts to feel in their apostle on that day. He says, I'd like you to feel it now, but you will feel it at the end. That'll be the correct response. So mark this, for, you know, for his part, Paul will feel pride in his converts because they're proof that he has successfully carried out his commission to bring about the will of the one who called him on the Damascus road, to be a steward and a servant and be faithful in it. Paul says, listen, I know that there's going to be reward for me because my conscience is clear here and it's my proud boast. We see Romans 1, 4 through 5. Paul says, Jesus, who was declared son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. He's looking forward to them being proud of him for that. He said, it'd be great if you could do it now, but regardless, it'll happen. And we don't appear to see that comment that we see here in first, or 2 Corinthians 1, 14, anywhere else in the New Testament. Just here. I wish you felt that way, but you will eventually. And I think that's a pretty significant indicator, catch this, of the coldness which, which they evaluated Paul. There just wasn't a whole lot of back response from them. And Paul just says, look, I wish you felt a certain way, but you don't. And that's kind of his heartache. He's just saying, but be clear, this is how you'll feel. I think, I think of the book of Hebrews, very Pauline sounding. Uh, and, and here he says this. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Maybe you haven't seen that verse before. Did you know that there's an accounting in the future where those who lead the church bring a report of the church to Jesus. Did you know that? And the writer says, 
let them, that's those who lead the church, let them do that with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And there will undoubtedly be both types of reports, no doubt, both joy and grief, right? So Paul had a number of reports to give for the churches that he pastored. He wants his reports to be with joy. He'd love for that to be the case. You know, Paul, you know, knew this very well. And we see this very familiar statement. Verse 18, pray for us, the writer of Hebrews says, for we are sure that we have a, here it is, good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So the writer of Hebrews sounds very much like the Apostle Paul. You know, someday I'm going to give a report of the church, he says, and I'd like that to be with joy and not with, not with sorrow. But regardless, I'm going to be bringing the report. And so pray for us uh, because we're sure we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So you can see the church, see, reacting to that statement, much like the Corinthian church would have, right? Oh, yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah, well, we've got some reports to make of you too, buddy. Except there isn't an opportunity for that. See, We don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. Oh, yeah, we'll say what we want to say about you. No, that's not what's going to happen. See, that doesn't happen. And the writer says, we're sure we have a good conscience. See, they've dealt with the church in such a way that they have a clear conscience, no matter what the individuals in this church uh, that the book of Hebrews is addressing may think about their elders, they haven't violated their fully informed conscience, according to the writer. Just like Paul says, I haven't violated my fully informed conscience. Regardless of what you think of me, it doesn't really matter because my conscience is clear. Why? Because it was fully formed by the word of God. The Holy Spirit was there witnessing that he was doing what was right. And he had a very small specific responsibilities that he had to discharge, and he said, and I've done that just like I was supposed to. So Paul lets the church know that his converts should feel pride in their apostle as they realize fully in that day all that they owe him, which you get right down to it. And all this helps us to make sense of Paul's hope, really expressed in the present context, that the Corinthians will understand fully what heretofore they have only understood in part. See, They haven't understood all of this. They've understood part of what he said, Here's the new part. Here's what I hope you understand before we get to that last day. And I think a good takeaway here at the end, really, um, for today, is that we can clearly see uh, from all of Paul's comments that he was really looking forward to the return of Christ, wasn't he? I mean, that really played a part in everything that he did. It was part of why he wanted a clear conscience. It's part of why he, he said, you know, make sure that you're dressed and ready to go, see? Make sure you're a servant when the Lord comes, doesn't find him doing something he shouldn't be doing. Make sure that you're fully discharging as a steward and as a servant, right? And you have, you have a stewardship too, we saw in First Peter last time, right? To, to minister to those around you by your spiritual gifts and thus have a good conscience as you do what you do, see? So that takeaway is this, you know, Paul's looking forward to the return of Christ, and here's the deal. A person doesn't do that, he doesn't look forward to the return of Christ, if his associations aren't correct. I mean, you don't want to say, oh, I'm looking forward to the return of Christ, and you're living like you shouldn't live. That's not going to be fun, okay? I mean, we see that in, in the Old Testament, too, right? We see the prophet saying, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is so great. You know, why are you saying that? The temple of the Lord is where the holy God resides by his Shekinah glory. And you're not living in any way that you should be saying, oh, the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. And we see the exact same thing with Paul. Listen, there's going to come a day where there's this whole accounting going on. And I'm loving that day, Paul says. And you don't love that day if you're not, you don't have a clear conscience, not walking with a fully informed conscience. And you have this, you have a, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And you just have discharged your ministry like you should, see. Otherwise, it's not going to be a great day. People who are living in wickedness and walking disobediently to the Lord. I mean, the Lord's going to catch them in that. 
And immediately that's all done and everything they've done is finished. And now they're before the Lord. And so now the beam of seat judgment. Right? That's not going to be fun. So Paul's anticipating this glory of Christ because he knew it would be joy for him and he wanted it to be joy for them. It's like this final appeal. Listen, you know what I've said. When you read it, you know it's me. You've, you've thought about it. You've, you've dwelt on it. You understand it's just what I've always said. Listen, assimilate it. Assimilate it. He knew his attitude was right. He knew his heart was right. The joy would be his. He wanted their, theirs to be right so they, their joy in full would be theirs. See? So his conscience is clear concerning what the Lord has called him to do. He's an under-roar. He's a steward. His conscience was clear in his testimony to the watching world. His conscience was clear concerning how he discharged his duty in this church. And so his integrity was intact, and he had no fear of any earthly accusation, and he had no fear even of the return of Christ. He's like, I can't wait for that day, and you're going to be my joy and my boasting. That's how clear his conscience was. And that's not out of reach. That's not like some extra several tier up Christian. That's just the general approach to how we live our life if we're correctly aligned with what the Word of God says and a fully informed conscience arguing inside our mind saying, okay, listen, this is what you need to do. Follow it. Follow it. And next time we're going to pick up in verse 15 and, and we're going to talk about Paul's sincerity. You know, just like it seems easy to accuse an elder of a lack of integrity, it's just as easy to accuse him of a lack of sincerity. And so Paul's conscience is going to clear, be clear on both these terms and we'll see why next time. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for a time we, we've given this time to you as we discharge your word. Lord, you just go to work in it in my own heart and in the hearts of everyone who hears this today and will hear it later. Lord, just do your work in our hearts. It says in 1 John 2, little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Man, isn't that great? See, when we live in this way, we won't have to be shrinking away in shame at his coming, but have confidence. You know, John is speaking to believers, little children, abide in him daily. So when he appears, you can have confidence, you know, and you get that fully informed conscience. And then when those accusations come, you can appeal to his highest human court and you can say, okay, this is what I need to do. And you can be exonerated, see, and that's the way to live. That's the way God, God intends for us to live. That's his provision in the power of the Holy Spirit and by his grace. See. May our personal life and our conduct be right, both here, and here's the thing, as we saw earlier, anywhere else in the world, see. You don't think people are watching, maybe the church can't see you, so it's not a big deal. Listen, our conscience has to be right in the world, too. Our relationships, may they be right, may they be genuine, transparent, honest, open, not deceptive, all those things, not creating some certain uh, persona that's going to convince somebody of some certain thing. See, may our relationship to you be right, Father. May we speak truth with you and with men so we can look forward to your return and have no accusing conscience. That's our desire, Lord. That's our prayer. Of course, it's also that you can be honored and you can be glorious and you can, be, you can do that through us and you can do it um, forever be glorified through us as we've done those things here and we have crowns that you give us so graciously for doing what you've empowered us to do and equipped us to do just seems so about you yeah it's all about you so Lord help us to be that kind of person help us to have an opportunity to, to honor you so Lord as we think about 
our sinfulness. Forgive us, Father. Constantly cleanse us like you indicated you would do in 1 John 1, 9. Through the work of Christ, you know, revitalize our conscience if that's what we need to have done. Affirm our conscience is working. And we're not creating calluses and searing it. And Father, for those who sit here and they've not come to faith in Christ, Lord, we, it's this message really geared to those who love the Lord, those who have been born again. But I know that there are some who are sitting here today and perhaps who will listen to this later who don't know you, who, who, don't, who think all these things are foolishness. Father, I pray, open their eyes today. Help them to come as a child, recognizing you are who you say you are, confessing with their mouth Jesus as Lord. It means he's in charge and what he says goes believing in her heart that you raised him from the dead that his our sins were satisfied by the death and proven that he was capable of doing it by his resurrection father those things result in salvation i pray today's the day of salvation now is the accepted time uh, christ says now is the day may that be this day for you pray this all in the name of jesus and all god's people said amen